Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Let's start with Jeff Sessions. Uh, yesterday, the, 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 the official debate continued without Elizabeth Warren, of course. She was silenced for having read, a, attempted to read out loud on the floor, a letter written back in 1986 by <coughs> the great Coretta Scott King, uh, telling why Jeff Sessions should not be confirmed as a federal judge. Uh, and, in fact, the Senate, again, Republican-controlled Senate at the time, uh, listened to her and others and rejected Sessions because of his racist past. Well, it was not okay for a woman to read that letter, but yesterday several men did line up to read that letter, Bernie, parts of that letter, Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, uh, I'm sure there were others, and Tom Udall. Whites had been using the absentee process to their advantage for years without incident. And then when blacks, realizing its strength, began to use it with success, criminal investigations were begun. In these investigations, Mr. Sessions, as U.S. attorney, exhibited an eagerness to bring to trial and convict three leaders of the Perry County Civil League, including Albert Turner, despite evidence clearly demonstrating their innocence of any wrongdoing. That famous case where he accused these three of uh, breaking the law and all they were doing were registering African-Americans to vote, just doing their civic duty. Uh, In the end, though, um, not enough opposition. Every single Republican lined up behind Jeff Sessions And one Democrat, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, crossed the lines to vote for him. The vote came out 52 to 47. Here's the Senator David Perdue presiding, announcing. One senator responded present. The nomination is confirmed. There it is. And um, Patty Murray uh, also pointing out how outrageous it was that they selectively used the selective enforcement of Rule 19 only against one senator who happens to be a woman. We saw the Republican leader selectively use the rules to silence our colleague, a woman senator, who was reading the words of an African-American woman and an historic civil rights leader. And Elizabeth Warren herself pointing out, here's the problem with these Republicans, and it starts at the very top with Donald Trump. They just don't want to hear the facts. You know what I think the Republicans object to? The facts, what she actually talks about here. And that's why I hope everyone will read her letter. Yeah, absolutely. It's a stunning letter. It's very, we read a good parts of it yesterday on the, on the air as well. But the bottom line is, and this is what's so tragic for this country, that the enemy of civil rights is now the head of the agency whose duty is to protect civil rights of this country. 
And we, we now move into an era where uh, the, our basic fundamental constitutional rights, civil rights and women's rights, workers' rights, voting rights, LGBT rights, they are all in jeopardy because this is a man who has never supported them in the Senate, never voted for them, and has, in fact, spent a lot of his career actually working against him. And don't think he's had any sex change. I mean, this is the same Jeff Sessions who was around in 1986 with the same sense of values, which are anti-American values and values perhaps of the 18th century in terms of uh, treating all Americans equally, which certainly don't apply today. And the other thing about Jeff Sessions is that I think is so tragic. You know, the Attorney General of the United States is supposed to be the people's attorney. Yeah, he's appointed by he or she, appointed by the president. But still, and we saw this with Richard Nixon, we saw this on occasion even with George W. Bush and, and Barack Obama, where the attorney general has said, no, 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 I'm not, don't go along with the White House on this. The attorney general is supposed to be working for us, not just a tool of the White House. The president has his own attorney. That's the White House counsel. The attorney general, again, is supposed to be an independent voice whose sole mission is to enforce the law and uphold the Constitution of the United States. That's not Jeff Sessions. He's not independent at all. He's the first senator to endorse Donald Trump. He has supported him through everything Donald Trump has said, including the Access Hollywood remarks on the bus. He's never had one critical word about Donald Trump at all. Even though some Republicans, even a Paul Ryan has at at, at times said, no, I can't go along with that, that Donald Trump said. Still support him, but can't go along with that. Not Jeff Sessions. He is nothing but a Donald Trump puppet. Uh, And it's it's a disgrace to have him there at the head of the uh, uh, at the head of our Justice Department. By the way, speaking of Justice Department, uh, I wonder what Jeff Sessions thinks about Donald Trump's continued relentless attack on members of the judiciary. I mean, we know that it started during the campaign when he went after this one judge down in San Diego who was supposed to hear the case. By the way, still hasn't been heard, the lawsuit against Trump University. Mm. The judge actually did Donald Trump a big favor by putting that case off until after the election. And and again, it still hasn't been scheduled. But Donald Trump attacked him, remember, forget his name, um, because he said he could never reach an impartial decision. He could never reach a fair decision because his parents came from Mexico. Therefore, you know, that Mexican judge down there could could never be trusted. Uh, Well, it continued just last week when the judge in Seattle put a hold on Donald Trump's travel ban. Donald Trump turned around, said it was ridiculous what the judge had ruled, and called him a, not a judge, but a so-called Uh, a so-called judge. And then that hold is appealed by the Trump administration to the the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in um, San Francisco on the West Coast. Donald Trump, they they hold their hearing Tuesday night, a conference call. You can listen in. Donald Trump listened in, and he said it was the most... Uh, he couldn't believe what he had heard, that these courts are so political. I don't ever want to call a court biased, so I won't call it biased. 
and we haven't had a decision yet. But courts seem to be so political. What, what do you mean, seem to be so political? This is just a hearing where they're, they're trying to ascertain the facts. And they list they, they ask some tough questions of the attorney general for Washington State, who brought the lawsuit, the attorney general for Minnesota, who joined in, for the lawyers for the 100 high-tech companies, who also were there in support of the hold on the ban, against the ban, in other words, and they asked some tough questions of the Department of Justice attorneys. That's their job, to find out what the facts are and to probe and to kick and to challenge them. So it's members of the Supreme Court do. Donald Trump says, oh, they're just being so political. And then he gives them this smear attack. I understand things. I comprehend very well. Yeah. Okay? Better than, I think, almost anybody and I want to tell you, I listened to a bunch of stuff last night on television that was disgraceful. It was disgraceful. He also said that any bad high school student could do a better job than those three judges did. Now, first, we, we can't skip over without commenting. I comprehend very well. In fact, I think I comprehend better than anybody. He is so, this ego of his is just out of control. It is really. Does like anybody little... believe that besides him? No, by the no, way, no, he doesn't comprehend. He clearly doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Not, not, not an idea. I never went to law school, and I mean, you know what? He couldn't pass law school. Right? But he couldn't pass eighth grade. He's got maybe a fourth grade reading level comprehension. But I understand things. I comprehend very well. But better than anybody, he says. Right? Yeah. It's everything has got to be. Bigger than bigger and better than name. I'm telling you, he's got a sad case of penis envy. Better he's than, got a little one. I, I think know he almost does. anybody. I, you know, otherwise you wouldn't talk like that. He's just got to be asserting how he's the smartest. He's the he comprehends better than anybody. He's got the biggest crowd ever. He's got the best hair ever. I mean, it is God, give it a break. But at any rate, it's so sick. But those comments saying that these distinguished judges, one of them appointed by President uh, Jimmy Carter, one appointed by George W. Bush, one appointed by President Obama, because it's a wide range of judges, three of them, they wouldn't be on the appeals court unless they were outstanding people. They were all, uh, they were all no problem getting confirmed by the United States Senate, all widely respected, uh, and Donald Trump says, listening to them, any bad high school student could have done a better job. Well, you know, it's finally, it's finally it's just too much for some people, including Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, meeting with Senator Richard Blumenthal yesterday, saying that these comments are disheartening, demoralizing, and abhorrent. He certainly expressed to me that he is disheartened by the demoralizing and abhorrent comments made by President Trump about the judiciary. Yeah, this is Gorsuch telling a United States senator that. And by the way, don't think that was Senator Blumenthal telling us about it. Don't think Senator Blumenthal was talking out of his hat. The White House staffer who accompanied Neil Gorsuch to these meetings yesterday confirmed that that's exactly what Neil Gorsuch told members of the Senate. So this Gorsuch himself who's saying abhorrent comments, disheartening, 
and demoralizing, which raises the question to me, then why doesn't Gorsuch just say, I don't want to be his nominee to the Supreme Court. I don't want to work for anybody who th- feels that way about the judiciary. you got to wonder. Yeah. I mean, I'm not condemning him for that, but it's got to make him think twice about taking that nomination. Yeah. A guy who slanders one entire branch uh, of the uh, of the government, you know, again, if he comprehends so much, maybe you ought to just, you don't have to read as many books as the rest of us read, but read the Constitution. covers the House and the White the Senate and the House and the White House for talking <laughs> And the Supreme memo. Court sometimes, too. Sometimes yeah. the Supreme <laughs> Court, man. Tierney Sneed working overtime these days. I've seen you down at the White House at a couple of briefings. Hello, Tierney. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, one area where we're seeing maybe a little rocky start with a, or difference between the White House and the Congress, and you've been writing a lot about this mm-hmm. on Obamacare. Obamacare. Yeah. So what a mess. What is the <laughs> what is the plan right now? Uh, that's a good and question. Who's driving the train? And that's a good question. And I talk to members day in and day out, and a lot of them don't even they don't even know who's driving the train, let alone what the plan is. I mean, the way that the there is a budget resolution that was voted on a couple weeks ago, which kind of set the right. process in motion. Right. And that designated a couple committees in the House and Senate that are writing the legislation, the repeal legislation. But, you know, there's the, everything's there since there's no legislation. There hasn't been hearings on the legislation. Everything's kind of hypothetical. We know what they're trying to put in there, but we don't know if the parliamentarian's going to approve it. So they are trying to get some replacement measures in the repeal legislation. But I don't think, even though that was a, a major issue for a lot of lawmakers going forward, they wanted some sort of replacement with a repeal. I don't think the, the, the debate gets any easier for them because there's a lot of disagreement on how you replace Obamacare. So you're going to have to litigate some of those fights right off the bat. Um, and I think it re- will really slow the timeline down for when they were hoping to get this done. And, Donald, first of all, they've, well, I think it was Drudge yesterday who said mm-hmm. that um, – <coughs> Americans should sue the Republican Party for, for fraud. And for I, don't fail- know, I don't know what the standing would be there, but I'm not going to explain that. He was making the point for failing to deliver. They promised on day one they were going to repeal yeah. Obamacare, and here we are, day, I don't know, where are we, 17 or something like yeah. that? Whatever. Day a million, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Never ending. But, but they haven't done the point. Is they all, McConnell promised, Trump promised, yeah. Ryan promised, day one. Ted Cruz, we're going to repeal Obamacare. Well, they haven't. Yeah. And now Donald Trump is saying, well, we're not going to repeal it until we do have a replacement. So it's going to be repeal and replace. And he told Bill O'Reilly Sunday night on Fox News that it's going to take a year. So we're into 2018, into a midterm election year. Really? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I get the sense that Shockingly, President Trump really doesn't know what's going on in the Obamacare debate, and his comments are Shocking. <laughs> shockingly, yeah, right. and his comments are kind of off the cuff, improvising when he's asked about it. But you see, um, lawmakers, Republican House and Senate members, try to take whatever he's saying and use it to support whatever they feel about it. So if you're a 
Senator um, Lamar Alexander, who's been kind of trying to slow the debate and kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about a long term solution. He says, oh, well, Donald Trump has a plan. So we want to wait to see that plan where you see other people saying, oh, well, when he says replacement in 2018, he means we repeal right away. But then the replacement takes effect in 2018. So it's funny to see these very vague comments being twisted and turned in whatever argument you're trying to make for the Republican path forward. But like he also said, Trump also said, like, Everybody will have health care. That was a major yeah. problem. Yeah. We'll give yeah. everybody yeah. how everybody's going to have it, which there's really only one way to do that. <laughs> right? And it's like single payer. Single payer. Medicaid for all. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's that was a major problem for that was a major messaging problem. And I've heard some members say one of their frustrations is that so much of the talk that they've been privy to has been just about messaging. We heard that leaked tape from the, the retreat, and a lot of it is how do you talk about Obamacare repeal without making any promises that lawmakers know that they can't keep? And that's why you're hearing them say there's going to be access to care as opposed to any guarantee of coverage. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to make it affordable, but it's up to you if you purchase it. Um, so a lot of the focus at this point has been all around the messaging. Yeah. On the access question, um, I don't know whether we can get that, Jamie, but yesterday, uh, Bernie Sanders in his debate Tuesday night with Ted Cruz, where Ted Cruz rolled out this. No, what we're what we're interested in is access. We want everybody to have access uh, to health care. Don't uh, get it, but Bernie Bernie Sanders, I thought, did a very good job pointing out this whole thing about access is baloney. That's what he's saying. Access to what? You want to buy one of Donald Trump's mansions? You have access to do that as well. <laughs> oh, you can't that. afford five million dollars for a house. Sorry. Access doesn't mean a damn thing. <laughs> access doesn't mean I a damn thing. I hadn't heard that yet. That's funny. But, but it's true, right? <laughs> yeah. I've got access to buy Mar-a-Lago. <clears throat> sure. Right? There's only one thing stopping me, right? Yeah. Same thing. If you have access to health care, that means, yeah, you have access to buying a crappy plan, yes. right? That doesn't cover your needs. But, okay, but you've got access yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. No. So this whole trying to shift the debate from uh, from really comprehensive coverage uh, at a price you can afford yeah. to access at whatever price for whatever crappy product is is a, is a non-starter. And, and what's interesting is that pretty early on we got the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan office that that scores all these these plans that said kind of laid down the gauntlet that we're not going to count really crappy plans as coverage. This is what, in our definition, is, is coverage. And it wasn't necessarily what Obamacare says is coverage, but there was a sort of a baseline of, you don't get to say you're covering you know, yeah. 20 million people if what they're getting is just the, the basically nothing. So I, we're, to be fair, we're really not even three weeks in yet, but it looks like there's a possibility that, um, Republicans will not succeed in repealing and replacing Obamacare. I think there has to be a vote of some kind. I think when McConnell said that this was going to be their first priority, I could have seen a world that they 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 didn't. They kind of took a step back and said, we're going to work on some, you know, you call it repeal. I'll call it reform legislation. But when they laid the marker down that they, they're going to have to take some sort of repeal vote. But what's what's putting them in a crunch is that they've they've initiated this process that they can't get to tax reform 
until they do Obamacare and what they, you know, they want to do tax reform. Yeah, right. yeah. And, you know, they said they wanted to do tax reform before the August recess so they could go home and brag to all their constituents, like, we lowered your taxes and increased growth and this or that. So that really has put, it's not even just the Obamacare de- debate is being bungled up. Everything else that they wanted to do legislatively then gets stalled. And right. it, it's going to be, you know, at what point do they kind of just say enough? We're just going to vote on what what we have. And just maybe it's not what we wanted at the get go. Maybe it's a partial repeal. Maybe it's a partial replacement. Who knows? But it's it's the longer it takes, the more problem it, it creates Absolutely. for them. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned something interesting that uh, that uh, Donald Trump you shocking does not know you're pretty sure the details of this battle or or yeah. this this issue it's it's complicated one thing we learned from Hillary Clinton with mm-hmm. Hillary care and learned from Obama with Obamacare look how long it took to get that legislation yeah. through it is complicated and there yeah. are many pieces of it putting all together so I, I'm pretty sure that no matter what he said yesterday about he comprehends better than anybody that Donald Trump does not comprehend the complexity of Obamacare Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Gabriel De, De Benedetti here, national political reporter for Politico. Uh, what's you've been taking a look at a lot of the Democratic side of the ledger. Meanwhile, what's um, our former president been up to? Barack uh, Obama on the sidelines. Yeah, he's totally on the sidelines right now. He is uh, kite surfing yeah. with Richard Branson on his private island, which sounds not so bad. Right yeah. Right yeah, I think most people don't blame him for that. Uh, but what I've found is that you know, especially in the race for DNC chair, but also in some of the broader debates that are going on in the future of the Democratic Party, you know, how to rebuild. Uh, there started to be a pretty ugly debate, or at least a pretty painful one, about his political legacy, because. Obviously, he's the only person who has had a national machine that has won twice in the last 20-something years. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of Democrats are saying, well, listen, under your stewardship of the party, we lost thousands of seats in state legislatures, lost 10 governorships, lost the Senate and the House. You know, So why should we trust you to have some sort of role? Because now what he's been saying, and this was before he went on vacation— uh, is, you know, I want to have a role in helping to rebuild the party. That's not exactly an uncontroversial thing for him to be saying right now. Well, uh, as you point out, though, it's kind of a l- too little too late, maybe, or a little late to, for the, to the feast for him Absolutely. to talk about rebuilding the Democratic Party because, in all honesty, he didn't give that a lot, almost any attention at all during his eight years. You know, I have talked over the last few days with a lot of Democrats who are sort of involved in the rebuilding stuff right now. And what they say is, listen, this is a, this is a guy who, when he was the leader of the party as the president, you know, didn't care enough about the DNC to replace Debbie Wasserman Schultz once it was clear that her tenure was a problem. He didn't want to play in the 2010 governor's races. And that was right before the redistricting happened. That was essentially a disaster for Democrats. You know, he 
in some ways scorned the process of uh, political, you know, building a political infrastructure because he had his own and his own worked for him. It just didn't work down the ballot very well. Right. Um, so he had his own organizing for America, which became kind of a, a, um, a force for the Obama agenda. Correct. Not for helping Democrats around the country. And it was a very big controversy within the DNC, though, again, this was not something that really burst out into the open much because base voters love Barack Obama and they continue to. But the reality is uh, OFA, which was his campaign, then turned into his advocacy group, didn't hand over the data and, and an email list from his campaign to the DNC until 2015, so well after Obama was no longer running for anything. And that was a big point of tension within party operatives because they basically said, listen, thank you for winning the presidency twice. We love you very much, but you know, how, <coughs> how do we use your, your, your engine of victory for, for ourselves? And it was a big question. Uh, what is happening, if anything, with this movement uh, that he he expressed an interest in that doing with Eric Holder. Is there is there an organization? Is there money? Yeah. Are they doing anything? Is it just too early? It's very early. I mean, a lot of Democrats have talked about starting groups like this, but Holder seems to be the Holder's group with which Obama has blessed seems to be the one that is furthest down the line. It's called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, I believe. Um, and it seems like what they're doing right now is trying to raise money. But what they'll be doing is trying to influence state legislature races. And there are some in North Carolina this year. And they'll also be trying to play in the Virginia governor's race uh, this year because the Virginia governor has a say over redistricting in that state. So what they're going to be trying to do, what they're trying to do is, uh, you know, playing in these very, very, very local races, which obviously is not something that you are used to seeing a former president do. Okay. But so Holder is clearly the Obama operation, right? That's correct. Is there any alternative um, force and and who's leading it? And There's a group called the State Innovation Exchange, which is trying to do this in a more progressive way, but it's unclear how these two groups are going to work together. Broadly speaking, the DNC, people running for DNC chair talk about wanting to do this. And, and of course, Bernie Sanders is our revolution. The group, one of his campaign, has talked about doing this kind of thing. But it's not as if there are a bunch of efforts out there that are trying to do this in a concerted way. Right now, everyone is trying to figure out what their role really is in this new Donald Trump reality, because some groups want to be the resistance. Some groups want to start the rebuilding. Uh, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what their what their lane is going to be. Is it in effect... Um, a replay of the Democratic primary, the Bernie people versus the Hillary people? There's some of that. I mean, and, and, and I've written a bit about how folks are desperate to pretend that that is not a tension, but it absolutely is a tension among voters in particular because they feel like a lot of the issues of the primary were not properly discussed. And that's why you see a lot of the folks who are running for DNC chair go out of their way to try and talk about these issues, to try and say, I'm Keith Ellison, but I supported Hillary Clinton, or I'm Tom Perez, but I'm a good progressive, that kind of thing. <coughs> um, but there's also now, I mean, in addition to the Hillary versus Bernie stuff, there's also the Democrat versus Barack Obama stuff. Uh, so there are a lot of tensions really uh, brewing in this in in the party as it tries to pull itself together. And the question is whether antipathy towards Trump is going to be enough to pull it all pull them all together before you know they fall apart. Right. No, I sense that as well, and I've brought, I've raised that issue, and everybody I have, they they say, no, 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 we're all together now, but that's that's BS. I, I mean, don't know. There's still some lasting, yeah, oh yeah, lasting uh, <coughs> unhappiness, right. particularly toward the DNC, 
because the Bernie people, and I'm a Bernie person, right, really <coughs> feel that the DNC, right. uh, they were um, in Hillary's camp. They were doing everything they could to screw Bernie. And the emails that came out confirmed that. Right. And I think one thing that has not happened right now is, uh, <laughs> you know, the DNC has not really gone on a charm offensive, so to speak, or no <laughs> DNC surrogates have tried to reach out in a full way to the Bernie folks. I think what they're doing is waiting for a new chair for a, for a new administration to basically try and bring those people mm-hmm. back into the fold because it's a big problem for them institutionally if such a huge, energized portion of the party doesn't trust them. I also think that we are 20 days like into the Trump administration, Correct. right? So like, I'm not totally surprised. That they don't have their act together. But also, I mean, if there is something to be learned from the Republicans, right? You look at what the Tea Party did. And the Tea Party was able to exist inside of the Republican Party while also beating back against the Republican Party. And I think that you're going to have, like, you will have a rift, right, in the Democratic Party. You will continue to have that. I don't think the Democrats, sort of by definition, will ever be on the same page. Sure. So, like, I think that there's going to be a sort of a period of maybe a little chaos here. And there, you know, there's going to be sort of the left wing's tea party that emerges out of this. Totally. But I think one thing that people are also very quick to worry about right now, which is not necessarily a reason for worry in reality, is that people are going to disagree with each other within the party. But when you are the party of uh, when you are the minority party or the party of resistance, as Democrats learned in 2006, you don't need to have one message, one leader that pulls everyone together. It's very easy for them to make electoral, well, maybe not easy. It should be a simpler uh, proposition for them to make electoral gains simply by not being the Donald Trump party right now. And that may not be something that they want to admit at this point, but the idea of them having major problems is going to be a huge fault line and a huge problem for the party's existence moving forward may not be the case. Right. I want to go back to this uh, challenge for DNC chair because it's clear now at the briefings, I remember asking Josh Ernest whether or not uh, the president had a candidate, right? And Josh yes. went out of his way to say, "No, no, no, the president's not going to uh, not going to endorse. Uh, you know, he likes them all." What blah blah blah, and and then he went on to praise Tom Perez without mentioning Keith Ellison. Right. Uh, at President Obama's last news conference, he was asked. It was either the next last or the next to last. Anyhow, he was asked the same question by someone, and. Um, and again, he said, yes. you know, whatever the party does. But then he went on to praise Tom Paris is the greatest labor secretary we've ever had, which would probably be true, I would say. And and but it was very clear yes. that Tom Paris is his candidate. Yes, absolutely. And 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 he has been endorsed not by Barack Obama formally, right? Uh, but by <laughs> Joe Biden, by Eric Holder, yeah, by Tom Vilsack, right. a lot of people who were seen as, you know, these Obama loyal, longtime Obama loyalists. So there's no question about it. And he's really gone out of his way, partially because of the issue that we were just talking about, where folks do not like what Obama did with the party itself, to not be seen as the Obama guy. He's made a ton, he's spent most of his time, frankly, trying to convince Bernie Sanders supporters that he's not some Hillary Obama establishment Democrat, <laughs> and it is true that he's a fairly progressive guy. He's um, got a great progressive record, but he is—he's—he's he's definitely the Obama. He is—he is more or less the pick of the establishment, which is something that he's trying very hard to work against uh, <coughs> that perception. In the same way that Keith Ellison has had to go out of his way to say, "I'm not the Bernie Sanders candidate in this right. race." Now, then you got Keith, who is endorsed by Bernie, yeah, uh, and Larry Cohen, and and our revolution. Uh, and Mark Pocan, a lot of members of the Progressive Caucus, 
But at the same time, he he went out and he got Chuck Schumer's endorsement. Totally. And Harry Reid's uh, endorsement. That's right. Right. So so he's clearly making the case. I mean, his buzzword whenever he talks to DNC members and whenever he's at one of these forums is unity because the, clearly his pitch is, listen, we had a last year yeah. that was pretty tough, uh, but let's try and bring us all together here. And he, to his credit, was extremely good during the campaign at going out of his way to make sure, you know, once Bernie was no longer in the race, that he was a prominent Clinton surrogate and that he worked to bring Bernie delegates into the fold, which was something that, you know, not many other Bernie turned Hillary surrogates worked on. Right. Uh, and then you've got this outlier uh, among all the candidates. The one that we find most interesting is Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. From mayor of South Bend, Indiana, yeah. who endorsed this week by Martin O'Malley. That's right. So this uh, is the new generation of leadership here, right? That <laughs> is explicitly the pitch. So yeah. Pete Buttigieg yeah. is this 35-year-old mayor of, of South Bend, Indiana, who's saying, I'm not a Bernie guy. I'm not a Hillary guy. Uh I'm a young guy, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, there, there's been a lot of writing about how he, people like him are the face of the future of the party. Yeah. Uh, From the Midwest, you know, executive experience. Absolutely. And that's what Martin O'Malley said. Yeah. So O'Malley, uh, when I spoke with him, basically said, listen, this is the guy who can move the party forward. You know, he's not trying to say that Pete Buttigieg is the Martin O'Malley of this race uh, because I don't think he wants that comparison. Correct. Uh, <laughs> yes, correct. But basically the, the pitch is, and this is something that all of the candidates who are not Ellison or Perez say, but Buttigieg has been most forceful in saying, you know, I'm not the Hillary guy. I'm not the Bernie guy. Let's just move past that. I represent the future. We need a young new face of the party. And again, the other folks are saying that as well. You know, Jamie Harrison from South Carolina, Ray Buckley from New Hampshire. But uh, Buttigieg is obviously the one who's gotten the most attention to it. Dave Jamison covers labor news for the Huffington Post and joins us in studio to talk about that and a whole lot more. Hello, Dave. How are you doing? Great to be here, Bill. Uh, it's good to see you. Before we get to uh, Donald Trump and labor unions, uh, he has a one of the nominees not yet confirmed, Andy Puzner for labor secretary. What's taken him so long? That's a good question. He was nominated two months ago, almost to the day. Yeah. And it wasn't until yesterday that the, the Senate committee actually got his ethics paperwork. Uh, so <laughs> it, it took a really long time. I mean, his people said it, there were complications with divesting and that that took a long time. A lot of people thought maybe he had cold feet about the whole thing. You know, this guy. There were a, rumors that he might have yeah. thought, oh, do he, I really want this job? Right. I mean, he's a fast food CEO. <laughs> he runs Hardee's and Carl's Jr., makes a lot of bank. Uh, seen no real indication that this was, you know, a real interest he had. And, but he has been really outspoken about labor policy, which I think is why he, he ended up getting the nod from Trump. Uh, but yeah, I think it's going to be a really, a really good show actually, the, the confirmation hearing next week. he's they, So they set it for February 15th. I now. believe so, yeah. Um, uh, it's definitely next week. And, uh, you know, especially with DeVos making it through, I'm kind of wondering if, if Democrats are really going to go after this guy and rally as, as maybe the nominee they, they can knock off here. Because it is, I mean, everything he sort of symbolizes 
again, he's a fast food CEO who's going to be tasked with enforcing labor law and protecting workers, including fast food workers. His chains have a long history of labor law violations that he'd be the, the watchdog enforcing. And, you know, the Democrats have been trotting out Hardee's and Carl's Jr. workers. They've just really been been pounding on this guy. And, uh, you know, I wonder if they're, they're going to, you know, stay strong along party line and, and maybe even manage to pick off a, f- a few Republicans. I mean, right. they, they would need three to sink them. Uh, but I think I do think it's going to be a fight, especially n- knowing that DeVos made it through. Right. Uh, does he pay a minimum wage to his workers? Uh, a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I you know minimum wage being seven twenty five, depending on what state you're in. Yeah, uh, I mean one interesting thing I actually I but, I, I got all these um, investigations from the Labor Department that were done in Hardee's and Carl's Jr. stores, and uh, some of them were, were 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 fascinating, but a lot of them were just not surprising to me. If you've ever like looked at what goes on at fast food restaurants, so much of it was was off the clock work where. Late in the day, things have slowed down. Uh, payroll is tight for the managers, so they literally clock the workers out, even though they continue working. Um, so they don't get paid for the last two hours of the day. Saw a lot of that. Uh, also saw one case where when things got slow, the 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 uh, Hardy's manager would would tell people to clock out and go sit in the parking lot, and then once more customers showed up, they'd. Come go out, tell them to come back in and clock back in. This, by the way, is like shocking, right? But it's not uncommon. It's par for the course. In yeah, the it's, it, right? it's and out that's, there. You know, that's the point with this guy that yeah. I've been trying to make to people is like people are talking about, oh, is Hardee's and Carl's Jr. are they better or worse than McDonald's? I'm like, look, that's beside the point. Okay, the yeah. point is these are industry practices. Yep. Okay, um, and you know, mm. this guy comes from that world. He has been on the other side of these workers, you know, throughout throughout his career there. And so, uh, you know, you, you, it's clear where, where, where his point of view is on all of this. Right. And, and a lot of this is the public statements he's made. You know, he said at one point, you know, we try to get the best of the worst when he's talking about the people they, they bring in to work, you know. Yeah. Um, he said some things that, that I think show a hint of disdain almost for the people who are, who are flipping the burgers and serving the food. And in terms of uh, any increase in the minimum wage... To twelve or fifteen dollars an hour. He's, uh, you know, uh, uh, he is not opposed to the minimum wage in, in principle. Um, you know, he has said that that he he's okay with it. He's okay with modest increases, and that actually puts him kind of to the left of <laughs> of a lot of Republicans. What a progressive! Days. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, he certainly does not like the idea of of a fifteen dollar minimum wage. You know. Right. Um, and he's, he's blasted all tons of stuff that Obama did. You know, the overtime reforms. He was a huge opponent of that. And why would he be an opponent of that? Well, you know, fast food managers, they're, they're like some of the most impacted by those reforms, right? These people work 60, 70 hours a week making thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, and they get no overtime for all that extra work. So the, the fast food industry in its entirety opposed that whole thing. He's also made it clear, has he not, that he would actually prefer... Uh, not to have living human beings. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, flipping the burgers. Yeah, you know, in fairness, I mean that, that that quote sounds brutal. I think if you contextualize it, I mean, sort of in his worldview, it makes sense, right? Is like <clears throat> if, if it's only human workers who who want vacation, right? You know, it's, and, and take bathroom breaks, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. You know, um, so yeah. <laughs> So I, I guess you know it, it, he would like to see uh, you know Hardy's uh, robots making all all the uh, 
all the monster burgers, monster thick burgers, or whatever it is these well, days. You but, know, we laugh about it with him, but but automation. I mean, this is a is a huge issue it is, facing yeah. the labor force in this country yeah. today. Is not, and how do we? There's a place across the that? street that opened up across the street from us at the Huffington Post called Eatsa. And, uh, like, you go in and place an order, like, on a little kiosk. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then, like, your salad comes out through, like, a little, like, a cubby hole. It's really weird. You don't see anybody. I mean, I don't know if a robot's making it back there or what. Um, but, yeah, this is what the whole industry has been saying all along is, hey, if you keep raising the minimum wage, we're just going to automate things. And we've seen hints of that. But I also, when you, you talk about some franchisee running a couple of McDonald's, it's hard to see that guy wanting to invest in, uh, you know, all this machinery and stuff. It, it's, it's a pretty pretty big leap. I do think it's a little ways off. But, yeah, I mean, but we're going to see more of that. It's not just fast no. food. It's across, as you, you mentioned, their servers. There's a place at Union Station. Uh, I had lunch w- once, and the same thing. <coughs> you place your order on a little you know, pad that's on the uh, on the table. Uh, somebody there did serve the food, but then for paying, you also d- pay with your credit card, right? And without any human interaction at all. Yeah. So, but like, where does that end, right? Like, no, it's exactly. Where, you know. You know, a lot of supermarkets. You know, they did the whole thing where you 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 yeah. self scanning. A lot yeah. of them pulled back on that because it turns out. A lot of people actually like human beings, uh, you know, scanning stuff, and people know the codes for the broccoli and, and all that, right. you know? Sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it, it, the question is, how far does it go? We don't really know. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, we know that Donald Trump hasn't read a lot of books, but, you know, at least he might read the Constitution. And if he did, he might learn that there are three branches of government, not just one. He might learn uh, that the president is not a king or a dictator. And of those three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, under the Constitution, they all share the power and they all deserve the same amount of respect, but not for Donald Trump. He doesn't show any respect or any appreciation for the job that they do for members of the judiciary. In fact, he mocks them during the campaign, remember? He said that a San Diego judge could never reach a fair verdict because his parents happened to come from Mexico. And from the White House last week, he attacked a Seattle judge who put a hold, temporary hold, on his Muslim ban, attacked that uh, Seattle judge, called him a so-called judge, and said his comments and his uh, ruling were ridiculous. And then, just uh, the other day, he attacked a panel of three appellate court judges from San Francisco, accusing them of talking gibberish and saying a bad high school student could do a better job than they did. Trump's relentless attack on judges, like his constant claim that 5 million people voted illegally in the last election, really have one purpose, if you think about it. He is trying to undermine the people's faith in our government, in our Constitution, in our democratic process, and in the judicial branch of government. Even Neil Gorsuch, Trump's Supreme Court nominee, called Trump's relentless attacks on the judiciary abhorrent, demoralizing, and disheartening. Yeah, Donald Trump's got it backwards. We don't have a so-called judiciary. We have a so-called president. 
This is the Bill Press Show.